The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. And today we have a grab bag of stories with two great tech reporters who are hanging out with me here in NPR West in Culver City in Los Angeles. We're doing this, well, live together, but recorded for you. Ryan Mack is here. He's a technology reporter at the New York Times. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And Bobby Allen is here, a technology correspondent at NPR. Bobby, thank you for being here. Thank you for hosting us. This is pretty exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Happy to have you, Alex. Great to be here. So, well, this is cool. I just said great to be here on my own show. It's always been a dream of mine. All right. We're going to cover four big stories, grab bag of topics. We're going to cover the state of TikTok. We're going to cover TikTok's, sorry, Twitter's place in the 2024 election, Elizabeth Holmes heading to prison. And if we can get to it, and I think we will, AI regulation and what's going to happen there. There's been so much smoke on that last topic in particular, but very little fire. Start with the state of TikTok. So, Bobby, you had a story that TikTok is in, well, TikTok is in the middle of trying to fight a ban in Montana. You know, it's filing this lawsuit to try to protect itself against this ban using the First Amendment in the U.S. and talking about how U.S. has a principle for free expression and by banning TikTok in Montana, it's violating that constitutional right. Now, that's a definite rule, right? But Is there any irony here in the fact that a company that's um, owned by a Chinese firm in a country where there is no free expression is now using the United States' own constitutional rights to try to preserve itself from like a national security threat type of move and using the rules here to potentially try to extend its lifespan? I I don't know if I'm here to measure irony. I mean, but I could. But do it, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Welcome to the grab bag. <laughs> First question. I mean, look, I think this is political theater. I think the lawmakers in Montana know that this is going to face really long odds in federal courts. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of constitutional lawyers and none of them said this has a snowball's chance in hell of being upheld. But it comes as a lot of states and the Biden administration are trying to figure out what to do about TikTok. I mean, You know, it's funny because remember back in the Trump administration, everyone thought that Trump's crackdown on the app was kind of a Trump sort of thing, like another sort of wild, crazy interest that he had and that it was sort of there wasn't, you know, bipartisan support to put the app out of business, come to the Biden White House. And it's like, wait, if there's one thing that Biden and Trump actually agree on, it's that the national security concerns about ByteDance and an ascendant China are actually the same as in the Trump White House. So, I mean, I'm curious to hear what Ryan has to say here, but I think how this case plays out in Montana could potentially affect state legislatures around the country and affect ultimately what the White House decides to do on TikTok. So right now, it's, yeah, it's so in limbo. it's not political theater then, right? I mean, if this is them trying to push this forward and it can impact and get the ball rolling elsewhere, it's something more than political theater. Wouldn't you agree? I mean... I think I think Montana is doing this to get Montana in a headline to make it look like they're being tough on China. So from that sort of perspective, I do think there's a little bit of theater here. 
Um, but yeah, it plays into the larger narrative of TikTok being this national security concern, even though there's not really any concrete evidence of that being that case. It's as one federal judge put it during the Trump years, you know, the threat about TikTok is sort of phrased in the theoretical that we could really get into it. But if you if you if you really scrutinize the evidence against TikTok in terms of the national security concerns, there's no solid evidence that the Chinese Communist Party has ever or will ever use TikTok as an espionage tool. Certainly, it's it's within their abilities in, in the authoritarian regime, but it's not like they've done it thus far. Um, look, China has so much data on Americans already. Like, I really don't think TikTok that they would be able to glean anything they don't already know about Americans from 150 million users uh, in the U.S. Uh, it's a lot of people, but TikTok already has tons of information on us. I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? It sounds like something that TikTok PR might say. At it's uh, what is that privacy center they have down the road that they built? Those Do you guys end up going to that Bobby TikTok was privacy was war, war room? I yeah, got, I was there. It's like they put they picked the Facebook election war room <laughs> invite, and they're like, "Why don't we just do that and see if it works to the same effect?" So, but I think there was some skepticism you around know, something it. Something funny Ryan, about ahead. that one. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear. So I got, I asked to go, and they wouldn't let me go. So wow. another our TikTok reporter was invited, and she couldn't make it, and she tried to pass the invite on to me, and they said, "No, you can't attend our supposedly transparent privacy." Center unveiling, um, which I don't think showed very much, right, Bobby? Yeah, well, they're they're wise to your tricks, Ryan. But it actually, so so Bobby's saying here, like there hasn't been a foul, and you're trying to say there hasn't been a foul that we know of, and you're trying to say no. I would agree with still, that. No, yeah, I would say. But you just said it sounds like something TikTok PR would say. You know, I think, and I'm a little offended. You're saying I'm carrying water for bite dance, Ryan. We're gonna have to take this outside. Should we take a break? It's going to be the first fist fight on Big Technology (laughs) Podcast. Honestly, this would be a really good one. I would videotape it. Yeah. It's too early in the morning. Um, No, I would, you know, I would, that is exactly right. I mean, it's, it's more that, you know, these hypotheticals keep popping up, you know, and these opportunities um, to show that ByteDance, you know, is separate from China, you know, like they keep failing at, or sorry, separate from TikTok. They keep failing at that like very basic step. And, um, you know, we have a story this week that shows the connections between the two companies and, you know, their inability to keep U.S. data out of, um, you know, Chinese servers. And that stuff keeps popping up. It's just like their lack of transparency here is and this lack of credibility when it comes to these statements um, are what's hurting them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think both things can exist. Talk yeah. about your Lark story. Sure. So um, this week we wrote a story, uh, my colleague Sapna and I published a story on this internal tool called Lark. And Lark is, if you think about it, kind of like Slack, like we use Slack every day. And it's used by every one of uh, ByteDance's employees, um, ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok. So if you're a TikTok employee, you're also using Lark. And it's like, you know, workplace collaboration tool um, they use in their day to day. So you know, there's these large groups on Lark that people are in. Some of them deal with, you know, sensitive stuff, um, banning and unbanning accounts, um, child exploitative material, um, and user information is then shared in these channels. Uh, let's say, for example, you, Alex, get banned from TikTok and you want to, um, you know, get your account back. You would maybe share your driver's license. Now that driver's license is then shared in Lark. And it's now there and stored. And so that stuff has been stored in Lark, which is saved, you know, that data is saved on Chinese servers. And it's been there for years and it's accessible to thousands of people in these groups. Um, You know, and so that stuff is out in the open and it's coming at this time where TikTok is saying, you know, we're protecting U.S. user data. 
it's separate from our Chinese operations, but we have examples that that's actually not the case. Well, Ryan, you've I, been, you've been, let me just ask this one, Ryan, you've been reporting on social media for a long time. Sure. A lot about the lax data, data protections that Facebook has. This sure. sounds to me more like kind of typical social media being company being casual with data versus like something from Xi Jinping to get my license, uh, my driver's license. Sure, so how do you think, or do you think we should really think about this differently? Yeah. I mean, I talked to, you know, many privacy and security experts and, you know, they say like, you know, these probably these employees are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, you know, unban this account quicker. They're trying to get this child exploitative material off, um, you know, TikTok. And they're working to do that in the fastest way possible. And so they're using what's ever available to them to get that in front of other colleagues to flag it, you know. But it really, you know, and this does, ex- this happens at other companies. Um, and these other companies, you know, they have to think about how this data is stored after the fact, after these tasks get executed. But these other companies don't have a Chinese parent company. Mm-hmm. And that is the kind of issue at hand here. And this company, TikTok, is now making these promises that it can separate, you know, U.S. user data from, you know, the rest of it and sort on U.S. servers. Um, and, you know, and f- as reporters, we hold up these companies' statements to them and say, like, you know, you say you're doing this, but actually this is happening. And I think that is the fundamental point of what we're trying to make. I, I do think there's two strains of concern that end up getting conflated. I mean, Ryan's really good story and other reporting has shown that there's U.S. data that is accessible from Chinese-based employees at ByteDance. That's one concern, but a separate thing, what I was talking about earlier, is whether the CCP can then get the information, right? Um, And obviously, there are uh, national intelligence laws in China that basically say, if the government comes to you as a private business, you have no choice but to surrender all of the information you have on companies. You can't really fight it. There's not like an independent judiciary like there is in the US. So for sure, TikTok says, you know, there's sequestration that our data is being sort of in the U.S., isolated from ByteDance employees. And that has been proven again and again, including through Ryan's recent story, to be BS, right? That's one issue. But the separate issue and the thing that is really animating Washington right now is whether the CCP can get U.S. user data. And on that question, there just has, at least there's nothing publicly available to show that that's the case. And I would agree with that 100%. So no more fight anymore. (laughs) That's good. We're making world peace two tech reporters at a time. You know, I think... you know, there's been other reporters that have shown, you know, the lax data practices of um, TikTok, you know, Emily Baker White. Yeah. At, at but, you Forbes, know, I'm example. hearing so much about data. And I also wonder just about the cultural control that this platform has, like watching Elon take over Twitter and then seeing the for you tab become entirely like AI yeah. threads leads me to believe that whatever company does control like the animating algorithm behind this can really put their their foot on the levers or their finger on the hand on the levers, yeah. some body part on the levers that control what we see. And and to me, that's that seems like the real issue is can they have cultural control and push trends? Now, I don't think there's any evidence that China has been doing that, but it does seem to me like that to me is like the, the key liability here. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's, there's one thing that I think is sort of a misperception among lawmakers who are railing against TikTok. And they think if one day you know, poof, sort of TikTok disappears that some other social media company can just gobble up the users and recreate that culture and bring on the network effects that TikTok really has. And that's just not the case, right? I don't think any one social media app will ever be able to match what TikTok has built because the community is so unique and there's so much about how the platform operates that is kind of sui generis. I mean, yes, there's, you know, YouTube shorts, there's, uh, you know, Instagram 
what, what are they called now? Inst- uh, reels. reels. Reels, of course. I can't remember the uh, name. Bobby, you so underestimate Reels, you don't even know what the name I is. I know, I forgot what Reels. I mean, Reels are just like, I call it like, it's like a salvation army of TikToks. It's like all of these like oh second and third hand TikToks. Very but, accurate. Yeah. But, but, but look, I just don't, I don't. Second I, and third hand. I, 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 don't, I don't think that there's any app that can just, if, if TikTok disappears, I think a lot of creators are going to be at a loss. I don't think there's any natural sort of raft for them to jump to if this ship is sinking. I strongly disagree with you on that. I, okay. It, I do think that Reels definitely can replace what we have with TikTok if we don't have TikTok. I mean, Ryan, I've you, seen your can TikTok I TikTok on something earlier? Though? I mean, my TikToks aren't going to push the needle either way. In fact, my you TikTok, making TikToks? Well, I had a TikTok agency that I used for the podcast to try to you know ride that distribution chain. Let's just say the ROI wasn't there, and we we mutually parted ways. I've seen some bad like podcaster TikToks. Well, the, you one, haven't seen mine, guy, so I, mine are definitely even below. Talk too much smack on. Go ahead. That's what this is Talk for. Smack. Oh, Get man. Out. Oh. What is, shot, what's that Ryan? Twitter account? TikTok investor, invest, um, investor on TikTok. They flag like the worst and most cringeworthy yeah. investor TikToks. BC TikToks. Yeah. They're bad. Anyway, Ryan, but, you're going to push back on something. Well, I, I do. Yeah. I mean, maybe just to set Ryan up here, like the last Facebook earnings calls uh, had reels growing substantially, not only in terms of usage, but in terms of their ability to make money off of these things. Yeah, I was going to go push back on something on TikTok, but we could talk about reels. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Push back I was going to say all. that there, there is evidence of them, you know, manipulating the content on their platform mm-hmm. with, you know, the, I think The Guardian, Forbes has talked about, you know, these ban lists of accounts, or like not accounts, but, um, you know, words that can't be surfaced or searched for. You know, there's mm-hmm. examples of, you know, Taiwan protests or Xinjiang, you know, there's or Hong Kong protests. Um, the question is, where are those orders coming from? Right. Someone in ByteDance or the CCP? And, and Doyen, it's the TikTok equivalent in China. I mean, that has been used and it's been proven to be used as a propaganda tool. So, yeah. yeah. What do you guys think is going to be the outcome here? Oh, man. Because I think, let me throw something out there and let you guys sort of give your opinion on it. It seems like these rules, like we had Montana, for instance, that stuff is not going to actually work. It's going to be ruled, you know, shot down in court. But it does seem like the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, also known as CFIUS, which is which is a great villainous name mm-hmm. yeah, um, really for an important agency, it seems like they are going to be the ones that end up doing something. And all this stuff that we're seeing, the stuff that we're seeing in Montana, the dialogue all goes to influence what their move is because ultimately they have the power. I don't know. ByteDancers want to give up TikTok. It's its first global hit. It's a huge mm-hmm. success. It's a It's one of the most valuable startups I mean, ByteDance is one of the most valuable startups in the world, and this is their global sensation. So I remember during the the Trump era, there was a huge pushback in China to the idea of a group of American investors or a U.S. tech company acquiring TikTok. And of course, there's the antitrust concerns right now. I don't think Lena Khan would be overly excited about a big tech company <laughs> acquiring TikTok. Remember I can't when see Walmart that was going to buy TikTok? Yeah, that was, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> was kind of hilarious. Well, it um, does. It does drive a lot of retail trends. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, so Ryan, actually, I do want to go back to the. OK, so we'll 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 just leave it as still kind of. I think unknown. Lemonade's going to take off their new app. Huge, <laughs> yeah. huge opportunity. So but Ryan, yeah. the Reels thing, like, do you think Reels is like a real factor here? I mean, I've started to use Instagram more than Twitter as I you know I've, my Twitter habit's been weaned off and I've been suspended, but, um, Ryan's cat video game is strong on Instagram. <laughs> I can attest. Don't send people there. Please do not. Um, I no, hate, and I also no, hate no, extrapolating on my own experience, but like, you know, reels is dominating the app, you know, they're mm-hmm. clearly pushing people that way. Mm-hmm. 
And it's no longer, you know, the redone, t- like the second and third hand TikToks, like Bobby was saying earlier. I th- I've, I've noticed more and more original content on there. They're striking creator deals. Like they, they, they yeah. are put, they are pumping a lot into it, but it seems just like three paces behind TikTok. There is a lot of stuff that's, you know, you see it on every platform. It's like those like puppy video, like the same puppy videos, the same viral content, you know, it's re- regurgitated through each platform. But, you know, I'm seeing less of the, like, it has like the TikTok um, like watermark or whatever. Watermark and the username in the corner. You know what's interesting though? Like my friends who are just on Instagram, they'll often send me a really funny TikTok video on Instagram as an Instagram reel like three days after I saw it on TikTok. Oh yeah, for sure. That happens all the time. I mean, I've sent you TikToks after you've seen TikToks. So I would say it's <laughs> kind of tough to scoop you on TikTok yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, But let's a lot of time just, um, I'm curious, every time there's a big debate like this, there are always some forces shaping it, right? Like the fact that we're having so much discussion about the dangers of TikTok, where we haven't, we've seen a little bit of, of um, sort of nefarious behavior from them, but not like, you know, a tidal wave of it. We haven't seen China invade Taiwan yet, for sure. I'm curious if, there, are there forces that we don't understand or aren't fully, you know, clear in the public discourse about why this is being talked about so much now? I mean, Ryan, like we used to talk about how big tech's favorite talking point was that you better like us because you're mm-hmm. really not going to like China. So like conversations like the one we're having right now happen all the time in the, in the tech press and the political media. Uh, I'm just kind of curious if you guys have a sense as to like who wants these conversations to happen. You mean the conversation about, about the, the sort of the risks of TikTok. Or maybe I'm being too conspiratorial minded, but I'm curious, like, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg be, wants this conversation yeah. to be happening. Of course. I mean, mm-hmm. it seems so obvious. That I feel like I don't even have to say it, but like all the attacks against TikTok takes the heat off of the incumbent US based social media companies. Right. So do you think we're falling into that trap at all? Um, no, I mean, after, you know, reporting on TikTok for years, I, I do think there are serious questions that mm-hmm. ought to be raised and ought to be explored when it comes to data protection and, you know, national security issues revolving around TikTok. And I think, I think it's, I think those concerns are real. I don't think they're being fabricated. I do think sometimes it's, 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 there's a bit of exaggeration and a bit of hyperbole and a, a bit of, uh, you know, focusing on the sort of theoretical outcomes here. But, um, I think it's a good conversation to have. I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? I think you just gotta, I mean, for us, I just, we gotta follow the reporting. Like, you know, mm-hmm. You see this stuff with Lark, for example, like, you know, we worked on that for a while and, you know, it's a clear example of the company not being transparent with what's happening inside their own service. You know, um, I think there's a lot more reporting to be done on TikTok and ByteDance. And I think there is kind of an inability to do that because of the lack of, you know, reporting ability from inside China, mm-hmm. from inside Beijing, you know, with their crackdown on foreign reporting inside the country. Um, but, you know, we can only you know, I feel like my opinions can only be shaped by what I see from in, from what we're hearing. Right. And, you know, and, you know, that's what we put out there is what. What's happening. What's happening. No doubt yeah. about it. I mean, I, re- I remember covering, do you remember um, that, what was it, a Trump campaign event mm-hmm. where a bunch of K-poppers and others artific- artificially boosted the attendance numbers? And the, on TikTok, the sign-up numbers. Was that the Oklahoma one? Or the, it was the Oklahoma yeah, one. Yeah, and, 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 and they did and, not show up. And right after that, Trump brought down the hammer on TikTok. And I, I and others, mm-hmm. I feel like thought this would go away after that. <laughs> that that it looked like straight Trump retaliation, and that he was targeting this app because it was embarrassing for him. But look at now, 2023, we're still talking about it. So I don't think anyone could have predicted that. One more media question, and then we can move on to Twitter stuff. Um, obviously, the tensions are rising between the U.S. and China. 
I don't think there's any doubt about that. And this story is part of that. What responsibility do you think the press has in terms of contextualizing what's happening? Because I think an inflamed press can leave, lead to inflamed action from politician, which can lead us closer to war. Or maybe I'm giving too much, of, too much credit to the media. Wow, that question really does feel a little above my pay grade. Um, how is U.S. coverage going to impact geopolitics? Or what responsibility does the press have to, like, you know, put this stuff in the proper context versus blow it up and infl- and potentially inflame things? Are you are, are you insinuating that all the coverage about no TikTok is sort of is 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 heating up tensions between the U.S. and China artificially, or what's the no? Just that it has the possibility to do so. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ramifications that are. Um, unintended and you can't predict from news coverage. It's not really something that I think about, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, th- I think <laughs> the responsibility of, of, of what we're doing, as you know, Alex, is just getting the facts right and re- reporting uh, the story um, and, and and standing it up in a way that's responsible. But um, I don't know whether whether the story winds up in the White House and people use it to talk about larger geopolitical issues. I mean, do we have a responsibility to think about that? I, I don't I think, think so. so. I don't think so. No one reads my stories anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, we, we all know that's yeah, not true. Yeah. Okay, let's. I think that, that was fair responses all around. Why don't we move on to another social media and uh, social media times politics story, which is the role that Twitter is going to play in the 2024 election. So last week, DeSantis announced his candidacy for president of the United States in a Twitter space with Elon Musk and David Sachs. It didn't go quite so well, but it is interesting to see Twitter's evolving place in at least U.S. politics. And of course, it factors globally as well. So it sort of went from like, this was the platform where all the political class and journalists chatter to, to like in 20, that was 20, 2008. You could say 20, maybe this happens in eight year increments. You know, in 2016, it was like, here's a candidate, Donald Trump, who's using this to circumvent the press and really, you know, sort of launch an insurgent candidacy. And now it's a lot different, right? It's a lot less... I would say relevant for news uh, than it was even a year ago, but you can still see um, see it at least as something that is as culturally relevant uh, to the point where DeSantis would want to announce his candidacy there, even though it didn't go poor, didn't go well. But like this is going to be, we're going to we're about to enter, you know, effectively year and a half of campaigning where Twitter will play a role, and it's sort of like interesting that Elon Musk is the wild card now. I'm kind of curious how you guys see this platform factoring and how you think it plays out. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, this, this week's event, you know, it shows that Twitter is now shaped by kind of the, whatever Elon wants Mm -hmm. in a way, you know, Mm -hmm. he hasn't made a secret of, you know, supporting DeSantis. Right. And as of like a year ago, he's tweeting, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to support DeSantis. I'm leaning towards DeSantis vote, vote Republican in the midterms. Um, And, you know, this space is, you know, the ultimate manifestation of like, you know, him, inputting his will and and changing the platform to how he like wants it to be you know what what's good for elon is good for twitter yeah and um you know that is going to reflect itself in you know the news that surface in the the for you page how that how that's tweaked you know what spaces are going to be highlighted and who's going to show up in those spaces and i think that is the kind of overarching theme here yeah. And just a clarification for listeners, we're recording this Friday before this airs. So we might use this week and next week uh, and last week interchangeably. But just so you know, that that's where we're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I think despite all of the movement to other alternative Twitter platforms like Mastodon and Blue Sky and others, 
political reporters and all types of reporters are still glued to Twitter. I think that's going to be the case coming into an election cycle. I mean, <laughs> I won't name names, but there are reporters who say they've totally given up Twitter and that those reporters are still liking my name, tweets. Name. Let's hear <laughs> so people are people are people are still there. I mean, look, Blue Sky is what it is, but I think what do they have like 90,000 users or something? It's like a tiny tiny platform. I think no, no. I think like, you know, like the the idea that Twitter would just disappear one day was kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. and like it would shut down and no one would use it. Um you know, I, I think it's going to be a slow burn of this thing, you know, as things start to degrade and things start to fail. But, you know, you you have there's like a there was a perfect example of how, you know, both political parties will use Twitter in the election. You know, DeSantis went on this space. It failed for more than 20 minutes as they tried to, like, get it working. And President Biden then tweets out, you know, a, a link to I think a fundraising form that said yeah. like this link works you know <laughs> right and I mean, just Trump also burn. jumped right Trump, on Trump it. Yeah. jumped in but he was on true social right mm-hmm. as I believe but his stuff was still getting you know pushed over to Twitter even Fox said even you know, Fox was like this you know, isn't gonna fail if you want to if you want to <laughs> see and hear like hear and see the candidate come to our but you know like it shows that people are still using Twitter right it means it's relevant relevant to a certain amount of people and there's you know there's still some critical mass there is it the same as you know the last election probably not but you know it's going to take time for these things to just completely go away and these things are still going to have a role well what's the wheels fall off the bus moment for twitter i mean there's been there's there's more outages than ever the desantis presidential announcement was a total disaster I mean, I, I just feel like, is there going to be a moment that finally people say, I mean, when you and other journalists were suspended from Twitter, people, a lot of journalists were like, screw this, I'm off. I mean, what's it going to be? I think it's different for everyone. You know, it's um, everyone's going to have their point where it's no longer tenable for them. You know, was it Elon going after, you know, his um, former head of trust and safety and saying, you know, pretty homophobic mm-hmm. stuff about him? I mean, that was for some people the last straw, you know? Was it the banning of journalists? You know, um, you know, it's going to be something different for everyone. Maybe it's just the service shutting off for a period of time, or people getting logged out so they can't yeah. remember the credentials. Right. Um, I do think it's kind of amazing that they spun this space as like mm-hmm. a we broke the internet moment, like we melted the servers. I was like, that's yeah, been like the refrain like service over service. and over again. Um, and they, you know, you guys didn't break the internet; you broke a feature on an app, you know, that's been breaking for the last uh, however many months. Yeah, okay, great, it, does, it does speak to the interest in this announcement on Twitter and this idea that there's ever going to be a wheels off the bus moment for yeah. Twitter. I mean, the platform, I can tell you from the moment I started covering this platform, there have been op-eds talking about how Twitter is dead yeah. and they always end up being tweeted by the people that wrote the op-ed. And I'm sure the people who talked about how much of a disaster the DeSantis thing was, you know, went on and tweeted about it and, hope to get traction there. So I do think it's interesting that Elon Musk has gone on to be one of, I guess, a number of Republican kingmakers in this election, or at least that's what he's positioning himself to be. What do you guys think about the role that he in particular is going to play in this election? And do you think his support is going to help or hurt candidates? Because I have to imagine that if you're DeSantis, you probably went through this type of thought process. A, okay, wow, the one of the most successful business people in the country who has like real, you know, very serious fans, very uh, real grassroots movement supporting him wants to feature me on his platform. Um, 
It helps in the culture war narrative. And this is very exciting. And then, oh, wow, like, well, you know, it didn't work out as planned. Kind of like our announcement was a bit of a flop. Um, and that association with Elon Musk, it's like very difficult, I think, for me to contextualize how that's going to help or hurt a candidate who wants to get close to him. Kind of curious what you guys think. I don't know. If you hitch your political future to Elon Musk, I can't imagine that you're going to be very successful. But people said the same about Trump before. Yeah, these can't imagine <laughs> statements are kind of. Right, right. Yeah. But I I just, I mean, I, I, I think obviously people like saying that Trump is, or sorry, that Elon is very Trumpian, but I don't think his base has a coherent set of worldviews. I mean, he's such a mercurial, chaotic person who's running so many different companies and has so many different interests that, I mean, besides being sort of a chaos agent and besides being someone who really relishes owning the libs, what else does he stand for politically? He's kind of a self You just basically described the type of person that Trump was. Yeah, but he, but he I mean, like so Trump, he's, like, he's, he's a self-preservationist. He, he, he hoards and wants to preserve his wealth. I mean, what else does he really represent, Ryan? What do you think politically? No, I was just thinking of the irony. He did the CNBC interview the other day where he's like, give me money. I don't care. Give me power. I don't care. And like, it, like influencing an election is the definition of like gaining power. Yeah. And caring. And caring, you know. Um, you know, it, 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 it is strange though. Cause it's like, you know, I don't know how much he wants to hitch his mm -hmm. star to DeSantis, you know, in some ways you've already, like, I've been on Twitter and seen the reaction to it, but he's alienating this like MAGA base that he's also, people love, you know, he's had this subset of Trump fans that like him, you know, for owning the libs essentially. Mm -hmm. And he's alienated those folks. Um, you know, he retweeted Tim Scott the other day, the Tim Scott announcement, the video on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, is he for Tim? Scott? But and he's putting Tucker on who might run for president himself. And Ben Shapiro, right? And he's doing Daily Wires. Ben Shapiro. You know, I think he, he knows that the election is inherently going to drive traffic to Twitter. And mm -hmm. ultimately that I think is his North Star. You know, if he can save Twitter as a business while doing all this other promotion of these candidates, you know, I think he sees that as a flywheel of pushing, you know, more activity to Twitter and more relevance to Twitter. Here's a question I have for both you guys. Do you, if there's a DeSantis administration, do you think Elon gets a cabinet position? Oh, I don't think he would take one. I mean, could you imagine going from the CEO of, unless, what was he like, unless don't he became- do you have to divest? Yeah. There's that. And, and, and the- Maybe the, he could become vice president, but like, come on, he's not going to no, give up. No, he can't because he can't- I don't think there's a conflict of interest in the executive no, it's branch. No, that's the whole South Africa. He's, oh. he's not born- can you be vice president if you're born outside the U.S.? If you're a U.S. citizen, I don't see why not, but don't quote me on that. There, we should yeah, you might end up read getting... the trusty U.S. <laughs> constitution. I mean, I just think, think yeah. personality-wise, he can't have a boss. So I think that would no, be a short-lived yeah, tenure. Trust me, I don't think that that would be something that he'd be interested in. He's building companies, not doing politics. Like, And you wouldn't want him as like you know one of the, the high prestige ones, like the Secretary of State. But I'm going to push back gently on this idea Elon Musk as Secretary of State. I mean, we've trust me, this country has been through weirder things. So I want to push. I want to push back gently on this idea that he doesn't have a, a political philosophy because I think you could basically describe Elon's political philosophy and his pushback and his his purchase of Twitter as something of like a pushback on what a lot of Republicans are like describing as this sort of totalitarian version of progressivism. And, you know, that doesn't want people to be able to have free speech or, you know, take certain positions. And like that is actually a very big part of Republican politics today. And you could say DeSantis is actually like a 
you know, key part of that with like his pushback against Disney in Florida and his other bills that, that, that the state has pushed forward. Yeah. I'm saying that like, this is actually kind of a, a more coherent and more of a pillar of Republican politics than I think you've given them credit for. So I'm just, far. I'm just happy that we have a steward of a major social media platform who's combating the woke mind virus. Cause it's just, just been a but while. You, can, you been... can dismiss it, but that's actually, you know, I, I guess like the thing is like, that is, that's a core animating principle of one of the two major American parties right now. I would, no, I was, I, I'll leave you with this. Yeah. I think, you know, Elon's core, like political principle, right. I mean, beyond the last two years is protecting his pocketbook, yeah. Yeah. protecting his exactly. companies, mm-hmm. you know, it's the, the, the amount of contradictions in this man is, there's like amazing, you know, he criticized, you know, the lockdown, the COVID lockdowns and mm-hmm. the woke mind virus for, you know, shutting down his Tesla factories um, in the in the opening stages of COVID, March 2020, he's filed that lawsuit in Alameda right. County. And look Same who thing. supporting the guy who was like the most strongly anti-lockdown. Well, I was going to say, you know, the, the, the same thing happened in China. You know, he, there was no criticism of China. The Chinese government, you know, Tesla's very, like, he sees China as very important to Tesla's future. No criticism there. Mm. You know, why not? Like, what? The, the same thing happened, you know, if not more in, in China. And you don't yeah. have him, you know, going on these Twitter tirades against, you know, um, Xi Jinping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so okay, so you guys have both had like pretty tense interactions with Elon Musk, um, where he hasn't shown the best side of himself. Let's put it that way. He's shown a side of himself. Yeah, right. So I think that I'll reserve judgment. I, I will judge. I mean, he like e- like I don't think emailing Bobby you suck is like the best Bobby. That's what he said. I do you. that yeah. every day. Yeah, he does. I mean, Ryan does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely frequently <laughs> will send Bobby those now, now, especially. And Ryan, what did he email you? He, did he call you like an asshole or something like that? You fucking asshole. Oh, okay. Are we letting Kirsten? Sorry. Well, uh, we'll bleep it. We'll do but that yeah, first. we're not yeah. live on NPR. Okay. Thank goodness. So FCC's not listening to no, your podcast. No, well, yeah, hmm. <laughs> they, they, uh, not them, but the platforms definitely crawl for swear words and, mark you down if you if you use them but we'll bleep it but yeah i'm, I'm kind of curious like so you guys have seen him be this the petulant side of yeah. uh the person that he is do you ever like kind of like sit that side beside and kind of say how did this guy who has like the doesn't have the minimal impulse control not to write these email emails be still how is this person the same person that can build companies like spacex and tesla how yeah. does that, you know, for the for the scorned by Elon Club, I want to turn it over to you and kind of see how that sits in your. Why are we not minds. rich, Bobby? Why haven't we built these companies? Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just kind of <laughs> trying to say, you must spend some time thinking about this psychology of the person, and also is the fact that like how I mean, do there's you, a du- how do you contextualize a person that will act like this, but also is able to build the way he has. You can either think of it as a duality or, you know, like, or this, you know, this is the quality that also helps him build these companies, right? You know, mm. he's so bombastic and, you know, in some ways pushes people, like maybe, it, maybe it's just like a forcing function to push people towards these goals, you know, yelling at them or telling them they're horrible, they're wrong. Um, at the end of the day, he's like a great salesman of his vision and however he gets people there, you know, works for him. And it clearly it's worked for him at multiple companies, whether that's SpaceX or Tesla. Um, and so I don't know, maybe that, maybe it's a quality that is needed from 
a CEO? I don't, I don't know. I've never run a company. But, uh... it's, it's hard to imagine how having no impulse control and punching down for a living can help you be a successful entrepreneur. I think it's a weird quirk about Elon that he has a lot of business success and he's also uh, just kind of a maniac. I mean, mm. he's, he sends me emails at, at 2 a.m. trolling NPR. And it's gotten to the point where my bosses at NPR kind of roll their eyes when I get an Elon Musk email. We're kind of sick of it. But, you know, my colleague, David Falkenflake, who covers the media, you know, he wrote a book about Fox. And someone said to me, imagine if David kept getting emails from Rupert Murdoch. We would say, yeah. we got to run this to the presses. We got to do a story. Sometimes we kind of forget Elon has amassed the power that he has, and that he is, is he the most or the second most wealthy person in the world. I can never it keep fluctuates. track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But um but yeah, I think I think his antics are so frequent that even in, you know, journalism, sometimes we sort of dismiss him or roll our eyes at him. But I, I do think when he's when he's bullying journalists or when he's sort of blackmailing NPR into tweeting again, I think we ought to take that seriously and report on it. Well, I right? think that's the most Trump, like he shifted the Overton window of how we think about him. Yeah. And mm -hmm. they, that's a Trumpian, like, you know, it's like, it's that's very Trumpian, yeah. right? Like, oh, well, he's done this, you know, like it can't be as bad as the last thing he did, you know? And so there, there's that quality to him mm -hmm. where you can't, necessarily cover everything and if you did it would drive you nuts and like i don't know if we'd be better off for it bobby don't you think it's time for npr to start tweeting again i mean he did take your label off yeah that's a decision for the executives <laughs> at npr i'm a rank and file reporter yeah. i don't have any say and honestly i don't i don't have a position all i know is like so many news organizations we derive very little traffic from mm -hmm. tweeting out stories um there's an argument to be made that whatever, you can help build audience on Twitter. Um, I'm not sure if that's the place to be building the kind of audience that we want right now, to be honest. I think we, there's more to be gained by doing TikTok videos than tweeting out generic headlines about the news of the day. So I haven't seen a real change in A, traffic, and B, uh, sort of the kind of people who are reaching out to me about my story since we stopped tweeting. So I don't really care. Are we going to see you on TikTok? Are you going to start making... TikTok vids that we're I, I I am on TikTok. I'm gonna have to make my account private after this podcast because everyone's gonna, gonna rush to see what my videos following. are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Gonna melt the servers. <laughs> exactly. Folks, you have not seen you haven't lived until you've seen Bobby dance to Renegade. <laughs> They've melted my it's melted my eyeballs. <laughs> we're here on Big Technology Podcast, joined by Ryan Mack and Bobby Allen. Ryan is a technology reporter at the New York Times. Bobby Allen, a technology correspondent at NPR which may tweet once again or may not. We're not going to find out after the break, but afterwards we will talk a little bit about Elizabeth Holmes going to prison and regulating AI. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Bobby Allen. He's a technology correspondent at NPR and Ryan Mack. He's a technology reporter at the New York Times, both members of the scorned by Elon Club. <laughs> I am, I am, alas, not when one of them. When is that meeting, by the way? Is it like next week? Every Wednesday? Every other <laughs> exactly. Wednesday? Every Wednesday. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Bobby and uh, Elon emails me <laughs> mean things. That would be fun. That'd be a lot of fun. Elizabeth Holmes is uh, scheduled to report to prison a day before we record, a day before we publish Tuesday of this, of uh, this week. She may be in a cell right now. And so it's, it's, um, <laughs> I guess it's, somewhat surprising that she's actually going to go. I don't know why I'm having that reaction. Like obviously a criminal um, actually going to go and it's supposed to go for 11 years. What do you think about the fact that she's actually like, this is really happening? It doesn't shock me. I mean, I, before I covered tech, I covered courts and a jury convicted her, a federal judge sentenced her. This is what happens. Um, a lot of people are sort of astonished at the the length of the sentence. I mean, 11 years is a long time. And 13 for Sonny Balwani, which right. even longer. I mean, by the sentencing guidelines, this is a pretty fair sentence. But one thing to really underscore here is who were the victims again in this fraud? Rupert Murdoch, Walgreens, Safeway, right? I mean, the, the most sympathetic victims in the Theranos trial were the patients who got blood tests that told them things like, you know, their pregnancy had been terminated when it had not. Things like the cancer had come back when it had not. The jury found that there wasn't enough evidence to actually convict her on those patient counts. So she's being put away for 11 years in federal prison, basically for stealing <laughs> from Rupert Murdoch and VC funds. So, um, yeah, I just I just think that's something so that gets her. lost in this. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I think she actually is going to serve for 11 years. I can't. I can't say. I mean, I don't. I, I mean. It's possible. It's possible. I, I don't want to speculate. I mean, that's her sentence. And... I'll do it. I think okay. she's got maybe maybe five most, just given the way that I see the American legal system. All right, I'll make a note. Five years from today, we'll come back on Big Technology she Podcast. She has a lot of and... political heft behind yeah. her. I mean, Cory Booker was yeah. already like writing, you know, letters in right. on her behalf. You know, I feel like there is maybe a politician somewhere that's going to hitch their start of this idea that you know. We were wrong about Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, her, I mean there are people who already are doing that, right? So her, her newborn child was named Invicta, which mm-hmm. I think is Latin for what is it? Always invincible. So mm-hmm. maybe that was a <laughs> a sort of way of acknowledging that she thinks she's going to come back. Who knows? There's the New York Times story that people talked about a little bit last yeah. month, called uh, or actually earlier this month. Liz Holmes wants you to forget about Elizabeth, and it was kind of like a Rorschach test between people saying, "Wow, you're." rehabilitating Holmes's image yeah. and well it's a some other people call it a masterful uh story that proved that she's able to manipulate depending on the situation 
kind of fell more in the um, former camp. Ryan, I, I'm going to excuse you from commenting on this because it is the work of one of your colleagues. Bobby, I'm curious what your reaction was to that I story. I think it was a freelance journalist, Amy Chozik, right? Didn't she write the piece? I mean, if Ryan wants to comment, I'm going to, I'll let him do it. But I just think it's pretty notable that the person who got the access and seemed to be, hmm, I don't want to speculate again. It seemed notable that the person who got the access and did the story did not cover the trial. It seemed mm-hmm. uh, the the tone and the tenor of the piece I think was to people like me who covered the trial pretty closely, seemed to be a little tone deaf. It seemed like the part of the intent of the piece was to sort of humanize this former uh, star of Silicon Valley before she goes to federal prison. And it definitely gave us some texture and some color of what she's like and what she's thinking and what motivates her. But there were also some quotes in the piece that made it seem like she has no regrets <laughs> that she she really thinks that um you know had she had more time that these promises of revolutionizing laboratory science would have would have come to fruition well, you don't and, i don't doubt that either i mean okay. this is a media driven uh demonization of a great silicon valley are you tim draper are you alex cantrowitz who <laughs> okay, are you okay he's got bitcoin no, to sell you it was a fraud <laughs> no, i was gonna say you know every mm-hmm. you know that's to your point though you know it's her saying that on record you know the journalist is you know, posing that to the world and allowing her to say that. It's like, you know, people can make a value judgment after reading that, but, you know, I think it adds to the Liz, Liz Elizabeth Holmes record a little bit. So, yeah, that is I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think any journalist would get the call. Hey, do you want unfettered access to Elizabeth Holmes on the record? I don't think any journalist would say no. Right. I mean, maybe some would. I think I, would mo- say yes. I think most would say yes. I think I think that exactly the, the debate is about how should this be framed? As that being said. said, you know, I, I think that it, I don't think anybody read that story and was like, actually, like, oh, I changed my mind about Elizabeth Holmes. And I do think that, like, people you give access. I guess maybe people did. But I think that access journalism, like, gets a hard time. And I think there's a place for it. Like, like Ryan said, you do want the principles and story going on the record. Just she so looks like a victim there. in the story, though. And just imagine yeah. if this is the only story someone reads about Elizabeth Holmes, how your takeaway about her and the company would be different than if you actually knew what happened. Yeah, I would counter that and say it. If you're reading that story, I don't think that's the only story you're reading about Elizabeth Holmes. Like you're probably going to go. Who's Elizabeth Holmes? You mean Liz Holmes? Liz. Liz. She it's wants a, you to forget it's about an Elizabeth. It's SEO thing. Actually. It's actually an SEO, yeah. <laughs> so uh, 10 minutes left. Let's talk a little bit about the potential that we're going to regulate AI. But before we do, I just want to let listeners know that we're here in NPR studios in Culver City and there's a talk, the talk and a cough button. And Ryan just- I'm about to hit the button that sends the first tweet since- Bobby Allen's latest story. Um, but Ryan did just use the cough button exquisitely. And I want to just shout him out for that. Well done, Ryan. I've never seen a button like this. There is um, some <laughs> artificial intelligence uh, regulation floating around Europe right now, which is actually quite interesting. It has uh, more than a thousand amendments to it and it's expanded kind of from like very like common sense legislation about like what should be used for data training to just this sprawling european style piece of tech regulation and sam altman uh the ceo of OpenAI, is now saying that we're going to take a look at what this bill says and we're going to try to comply but if we can't comply we're going to seize operating in europe I just want to call out a less graceful use of the cough button by Bobby. But Bobby, I'm just curious. 
uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on on this piece of regulation and whether you think it's actually going to, um, whether you think it's going to be passed, whether you think it will change the way that OpenAI regulates in, uh, operates in Europe, do they even have to operate in Europe? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to talk about this without talking about social media. I mean, remember, Facebook was running ads for a while that, that were basically saying, please regulate us, right? And I think, you know, the industry will come in and beg Congress to pass laws and then nothing will happen. I'm, I'm sort of cynical in that, I, at least in the U.S., I don't think that there's going to be any AI regulation happening anytime soon. Of course, it's it's very different because the First Amendment, I think, was getting in the way of social media regs in a way that it may not with regulating generative AI. But Europe, as you know, they with with data security, with with so much in tech regulation space, they've been sort of ahead of the curve. And if any part of the country passes, um, you know, AI regulations first, it's gonna be it's gonna be the EU. But I think we should explain what EU is saying. Right? They're saying that any copyrighted material that's used in a generative AI context should be, you know, that should not be allowed and you should have the ability to pull that out. Yeah, here's the language from the Financial Times. Under the European Parliament's proposals, developers of generative AI models like ChatGPT would have to disclose content that was generated by AI and publish summaries of copyrighted data used for training purposes so that creators can be remunerated for the use of their work. Right. Mm-hmm. And OpenAI is saying, please don't regulate us like that. That's not what we want. It just goes to show you how much text has actually been used for this. And, you know, they've it's created the fastest growing consumer product in history. But, the I mean, obviously the algorithms are the innovation, but the data used to train it is... Um, Sort of, this is all being built on the back of that stuff. And Sam, 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 Sam's on. Sam Altman's on an international charm offensive right now. I think, you know, he like Zuckerberg before him is. They're trying to embrace regulations, but really, when there's serious regulations proposed, they're I saying think embrace in air quotes, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not really embrace. Sort of pay lip service to the idea of the government coming in and 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 sort of mounting some kind of guardrails. But when the rubber hits the road, they're kind of like, ah, do we really want this, right? Um, yeah. So it's 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 interesting. I find it kind of fascinating that folks are again saying, well, there's bipartisan agreement and the companies are agreeing that AI needs to be regulated and it's going to happen inevitably. And I'm just like, wait a second, like we just saw years of this type of stuff being talked about when it comes to big tech and nothing happened, basically nothing. And I just, I, I'm wary about going down the same rabbit hole, say like expecting that something's going to happen, except maybe if it does come from Europe, that's like the one big if Europe is just like, they're very gung-ho on bringing the hammer down on, yeah. on tech companies. I, if this point has been made by others, I can't remember who, it's not my original idea, but you know, Sam Altman and OpenAI had a whole hype cycle around the introduction of Dolly and then ChatGPT saying, look at these incredibly powerful generative AI tools, amazing for him and the company. And now he has a second sort of news cycle that he is going around to legislatures and to, and to Washington and all around the world saying, we want rules, we want to rein this in, which is another super positive sort of news cycle for him. So he's really being cast as this like crusade, this like little, this little tech genius who's just like brilliant and big and, tech genius and creates, <laughs> there you go, who <laughs> creates powerful tools and also wants rules to regulate it. And, and the truth is, is, is definitely not that, but that's the impression that some are left with, I think. What are you going to say, Ryan? No, I was just going to say, you know, he's, he's learning from the mistakes of Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. you know, where, you know, 
Zuckerberg created the you know massive platform, then had this whole period where he you know got dumped on for not being able to rein it in, and now and then went out and said you know said like please regulate us. We're not going to tell you how to regulate us, but you know it it'll look good for us if we say please regulate us, and we're going to put ads in every major newspaper and that kind of thing. You know Altman has kind of learned from this. And he's kind of accelerated that process and kind of skipped, in some ways, skipped over that like hate period, you know, in a way. Maybe it'll come later for him or, but he certainly accelerated to the point of like the please regulate us part. I'm not going to obviously tell you how to regulate us, but, you know, it's going to make me look good if I say it. But I protest when I don't like the regulation. But he's the one who unleashed this beast, right? I mean, OpenAI could have made a decision not to publicly unveil Dolly and ChatGPT. I mean, that, and then Microsoft saying, you know, that Bing was going to use ChatGPT4 in some of its search results really, I think, made the whole market sort of respond. Everyone's now trying to develop their own generative AI tools. But it's interesting to me that he both like unleashed the beast into the world and he's now saying it, it ought to be restrained. Like, how do you do both of, how do you hold both of those things in your past at once? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I guess the, my perspective is that's just not going to happen. What's not going to happen? That it's just, they are going to just keep do keep building and yeah. we're not going to see regulation on this stuff. Do you think it's hyperbole when Sam Altman says we'll have to pull out of Europe if this bill passes? No. I mean, I think that like you can, you had, you spoke to Gary Marcus about this, yeah. about the feasibility of it. Exactly. So yeah. I think that it's, it would be quite difficult to keep up with those, regu- with those regulations because they can basically, and I think I'm going to characterize this correctly. They can share like the wide body of stuff that the it was trained data, on, but yeah. you can't be like this particular answer incorporated, you know, news stories from the New York Times and yeah. from NPR and stuff like that. Like actually pointing the specific pieces of data is impossible uh-huh. given the way that these systems are built. So if they're forced to do that and they can't do that, yeah, yeah. I could see them saying, all right, I, listen, our goal is AGI. You know, these are products that we've shipped to sort of help us get us there. We don't need to do it in Europe. Like it's not... Yeah. It's not part of what we're aiming for. The the legal reporter in me is really excited for <laughs> for two things. One, for OpenAI to be sued in a in a in a suit that actually makes it to the discovery phase. Not that I want any kind of judgment against OpenAI, but just for transparency's sake, to really mm. open up some of these black boxes around um, the AI and the training data. You know, it'd be really interesting to yeah. to have um, lawyers sort of probing into that and to make some of that information public. And two, when there's a test case about whether Section 230 ought to apply to some of the outputs from ChatGPT, I think that's completely uncharted territory and from a legal perspective, super fascinating. Yeah. Ryan, any final thoughts? I'm just stewing on the fact that he said the legal reporter in me, <laughs> which is a very... Bobby's good at court. <laughs> yeah. He really... He really- I haven't seen that side of him recently. But what, yeah. do you want my Pacer login? Yeah, he's always scooping this stuff. All right, folks. Thank you so much, Bobby Allen. Thank you, Ryan Mack, for joining. So great to spend the hour with you guys and great to see you again in yeah, person. This was a blast. See you, man. Super fun. Uh, you want to shout out where people can find your work? Um, yeah, Truth Social uh, <laughs> slash Bobby Allen. Do you really have a True Social Should account? I hit this button to tweet from the NPR account yet? Or are we waiting <laughs> yeah. for after? No, not know? yet. Not yet. Not yet. Um, yeah, NPR.org. And your TikTok? No, no. no. <laughs> okay, Ryan. Uh, Twitter still? Yeah. Hopefully. What's your handle? Uh, RMAC18. Okay. There's 17 other RMACs out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Blue Sky, if you have an invite. Um, very exclusive. Yeah, club. get me on Blue Sky. I haven't, I haven't um, skied it yet. But you haven't. Uh, yeah, you're waiting say. for an invite, or I see Ryan skating, but I haven't skied it personally. Wait, Bobby, yeah, you're on there. I'm on you're there. On there. You I just, just haven't posted. You refuse. You're, you're on the taking, Blue Ski. You're yeah. standing in solidarity with NPR on Twitter by not skiing on Blue Sky. 
I don't want to see you skeeting anywhere. That's <laughs> it. Thank you guys so much for joining. Thank you, NPR Culver City for ha- NPR West and Culver City for having us here. Uh, this was super awesome. Thank you, Maggie Luthar, for hanging out with us in the booth and helping produce this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Nate Guatney, for uh, handling the audio here at Big Technology Podcast. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. Preview. We did this show. We were here. It was contemporary. Next week, my interview with Astro Teller from Google X is going to air. I just listened to it. I think it's one of the best interviews uh, in this show's history. So I hope you tune in for that. And I'll be back on Friday with another live podcast with Ron Judd Roy. You can catch us on LinkedIn at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, or here on the feed right afterwards. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Big Technology Podcast.